good to see everybody here today. Um, hopefully, uh, things have been um, a good week. Um, sorry, my tablet is not working right now, so. Anyways, yesterday we had a great time uh, doing our hiking road trip. Uh, it was led by Albert and, um, you know, the, uh, the fellowship committee. Uh, too bad most of us uh, may not have been able to make it. You can make it next time. It was a great time because you just didn't know what you were going to go get. You know, you just didn't know where we were going. It's an adventure. Um, and so it was quite exciting for me. <laughs> but um, anyways... I hope uh, to see you again next year. So, we're looking here in Acts, and um, here in this passage, uh, we're talking about conversion stories. Sorry, my notes are having technical difficulties. And we've been looking here in the Acts. If you remember last week, we talked about Lydia. And uh, we're looking at her conversion and how she became a, a Christian. And I'm trying to show you some of the things that we see in the narratives here. And as we continue to read in this chapter, um, we read about this slave girl. Now, if you ever watched uh, those movies where you see an exorcism, to me still today, one of the scariest movies I, I've seen and still see today is called The Exorcist. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's, it's really scary, and it's still, you know, you, you wonder why we're scared about such things, especially if we've never personally experienced them, but yeah, this is kind of a scene from one of those movies, and um, it's an interesting account, I think. I want to spend not only Sunday, this is more of an introduction to this section, but next week as well, to dig a little bit into what I see in terms of one of the narratives that I see here uh, that we can talk about, but before we get there, I just wanted to unpack this part, because I think it's also very important to understand the gospel. Okay? In 1736, um, Jonathan Edwards wrote a very important book, and uh, still in print, still much read, and it's called A Narrative of Surprising Conversions. And in many ways, that's what Luke is giving us here, here in the 16th chapter. It's, it's a narrative, a, a portrait gallery of, you know, surprising conversions, men and women, particularly in this passage, two women and one man. And last week, we looked at the first one, and it was a woman named Lydia. If you remember from last week, this Lydia, she was a prosperous Asian woman from Theatria, and she was a seller of purple goods, uh, expensive cloths, and um, it was only able to be afforded by the rich, okay? But today, we look at here about 
this little girl, actually, a teenage girl, and she's called a slave girl. And so it's probably a week later, and um, Paul and, and Silas and maybe some followers were, again, on their way to the synagogue, and uh, they're on their way probably to the place of prayer again, and they meet this girl, all right? And in verse 16, uh, we're kind of told who she is. So let me try to give you a little bit of background of, of who she is. First, uh, by the word, if you know the original language of the New Testament, which is Greek, that's right. Um, you see that the word girl here is actually someone who's very young. Okay, so you have a young girl, maybe 10 to 14 years old at most, right? She's a kid. But you also see that from the verse 16 that she has a spirit of what the Bible says, divination. A spirit of divination. And literally in the Greek, uh, that word spirit of divination says python spirit, <clears throat> snake spirit. So those of you who know Greek mythology, you can now wax eloquent as you kind of tell me what this is all about. But if you remember, this is where it's coming from. Back in those days, Greek mythology was still important, right? It was still popular. And they believed that there was this god Zeus who had two sons, Apollos and Artemis. And Apollo was said to um, have an oracle at Delphi. An oracle was someone who could tell the future, someone who could prophesy. And so Apollo, they believed, manifested himself by means of a snake or a python that guarded that oracle or, uh, at Delphi. And that mythology, that, that understanding, crept over here into Philippi, okay? And so when Paul says, or when Luke says, that this girl had a spirit of divination, he's literally saying in the Greek, she had a python spirit, meaning they believed that she was speaking the words of Apollo, right? Now, any person today in modern times would look at this and say, well, she's mentally ill, obviously. You know, there's something wrong with her mentally, and so she needs some psychological or psychiatric help. That's what we would say. But the problem here that we're told in our passage is that what she was saying, these predictions actually came true. They were true. She knew things that she shouldn't have been able to know. And that's why it's confusing. So you look at verse 17, and it says that she's, she's shouting, right? She's shrieking, and this is what she says. She says, these men are servants of the Most High who proclaim to you the way of salvation. That's true. And the thing is, nobody knew who these guys were. Nobody knew around them that they were missionaries. No one knew that they were ministers and that they were there to tell the gospel. And yet here's this little girl shrieking, shrieking, and she's, and what she says is true. Puritan William Bates put it this way. He says, quote, uh, The devil will tell you a hundred things that are true in order that he might tell you the hundred and first thing that isn't true and weave his way of cunning and evil into the machinations of your heart and soul. And what we see here then, if anything, is this. The point is that the devil, or even demons if you think about it, know more about God than you and I right? They have accurate theology. They know everything. They have better theology than you and I, okay? You can know all the theology and understanding who God is, and you can still hate God. But at the very least, I think, you know, on a side note, I think this is what we can say, and that is this. Just because someone told you something true doesn't always mean it's from God, okay? That's what we see here. 
But anyway, let's move on. And as you continue to read the story in verse 18, what happens is this girl is following Paul and Silas around, and she's constantly shrieking, saying this over and over again. And we're told in verse 18 something interesting. Paul, it says, became greatly annoyed. Okay? He's greatly annoyed. Yes, pastors get annoyed. Okay? Uh, missionaries can get annoyed. Uh, and even the apostle Paul gets annoyed. And so you've got to understand, when Luke wrote this, you've got to know that he, this couldn't have been made up because it, it doesn't make Paul look very good. It makes him look terrible. You would think Paul would see this poor girl who's struggling, who's a slave, who's, who's going through spiritual turmoil, that he should have wrote something like, Paul moved with compassion and empathy, decided to help her. Right? That's what she just said. But, but he, he doesn't. It says he was greatly annoyed. And so Paul, having been greatly annoyed, he turns to the Spirit and he says, I command you in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Okay? In the name of Jesus, I command you. Now what's that about? Why, why the name of Jesus? Well, in this culture, names were a big deal. Names revealed your nature. That's why oftentimes when someone came to visit someone on official business, they would say something like, I come in the name of so-and-so. It means you carried a certain authority and power. And names meant something. That's why last week, Lydia has a name. This slave girl doesn't have a name, right? And it usually means that she has no power or authority. It's insignificant, right? And so in the ancient world, you know, somebody thought that you had power over authority over someone if you knew uh, its name or her or his name, its real name. So when Paul says, in the name of Jesus, come out, right? It's, he's basically saying, his name is greater than yours, more authority and more power than yours, and so you need to come out. And the demon listens, and he's gone. Now, I don't know what you think about this story. I don't know, maybe you experience, I don't know if you ever experienced anything like this. You know, it sounds like one of the stories, if you ever grew up in a church and youth group and you went to a retreat, you know how we used to do as children, at night when we're all hanging out, we all tell these scary stories about these weird things that happened, right? And it would kind of freak everybody out. But I, I don't know if you believe in these things right now. I mean, and you might be thinking, well, well Pastor Francis, you, do you believe in these things? Do you believe in, like, demon, demon possession and, and spiritual oppression and all these kinds of things? And I just want to say this. If you're open to the idea of spiritual good, you've got to be open to the possibility of spiritual evil. If you're open to the idea of spiritual good, you've got to be open to the possibility of spiritual evil. You know, the 1995 movie... Um, the uh, Usual Suspects. You remember that movie? Kevin Spacey, who eventually we know is the character, Kaiser Sose, says this famous quote. The greatest thing, the greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was convincing that the world uh, he lived in, in the world that he lived in, that he doesn't exist. The greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Andrew Bonko, uh, in one of his books called The Death of Satan, says this. Modern people have underestimated the power of evil. If you have a scientific worldview, then everything's either psychological or sociological. There's always some kind of explanation. And everything bad can be explained this way. And so the answer for a society today is we just need to give them better therapy, right? They wouldn't do this. They wouldn't be like this if we just gave them some therapy. And oftentimes, the answer to that is medication. Here's some pills. Take it. Maybe it'll fix you. 
I, I don't know what you think about these things. I'm not saying these things always happen, but I do believe they do happen, and I don't think that psychology and sociology can always explain everything. But here's my point, okay? This is where we need to focus. She was a young girl who wasn't just socially enslaved. I mean, she was a slave, but she was spiritually enslaved. She was spiritually oppressed uh, under the power of something really not in her control. And you look at this girl, and you might have to ask yourself, do you have anything in common with this girl? And you might think, no, I don't, because I don't believe in this. Well, let me, let me think of it this way. I talked to this one a few people uh, about work, you know, because most of us work, and, and uh, work is a big part of our lives. And over and over again, sometimes during those hard periods of during work, I hear this. I feel like a slave. I feel like a slave at work, right? I feel like I don't have control over my life. I hate my job. But at the same time, you feel like you have to because it gives us what we need. It provides what we want. Or it provides the means to what we think we need. So oftentimes, many of us in the workforce, we feel like we, we end up doing something we don't like doing. We end up doing what we hate to do in order to be able to do or to get what we love to do and get. And we don't control that. It controls us. Here's why. You and I, we live by what we want. Uh, we live by what we desire. For example, if you live for power, if you want, desire power, you're going to be controlled by that desire, right? Because you have to now do everything you can to keep that power. If you live for your career, you're going to have to do everything you need to do to maintain your career, right? If you live for a relationship, you will have to do, do things you don't even like to do in order to keep that relationship. Those things you don't control, they control you. I experience this all the time. You know, I don't like dishwashing. I don't know anyone who loves dishwashing, right? But I, I, I need to do dishwashing in order to maintain my relationship with my wife, right? I don't control her. I don't control this. It controls me. It controls my desire. Whatever you love the most, whatever you think is most important to you, whatever you think you are living for, I think this, the truth is, it will possess you. It will control you, right? The love of your life eventually becomes the Lord of your life. What is that today? And the reason is because we are also enslaved. We are enslaved to our own desires. We're a slave to it. And we don't have power over it, right? It has power over us. You know, it's like that children's cartoon back in the day. I don't know if you remember this, but there was a cartoon called He-Man. Remember that, He-Man? And you know, if you know that cartoon, you know that every beginning of the, of the show is this buff character with a huge sword. And what does he say? It's masters of the universe. And he raises his sword and he goes, I have the power. That's every kid's dream. <laughs> to be the master of the universe, the master of my life, and to be able to say, I have power. I have control. But the case is not. 
You may not be enslaved to a demonic spirit, okay? You may not be enslaved to the python spirit like this poor girl is, but functionally speaking, you will be a slave to someone or something. Someone or something or someone in your life will be your master, whether it's your family, whether it's your work, whether it's your children, whether it's your friends, uh, your money, your reputation, your own self-righteousness, okay? Um, your own need for affirmation. If you live for those things, you will be enslaved to those things, okay? And it's so true. John Calvin had it so right to, to summarize in his books. You and I, it's just how we were made. We were made to worship. And if you're not a slave to Christ... If you don't worship him, if you don't live for him, you will be enslaved to something or someone else. You will worship something or someone else. There will be something else that you will want to live for. And I think the authors of the Bible, and especially Paul, they understood this. Listen to this. <clears throat> Romans chapter 1, verse 1. How does Paul introduce himself? Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. That word bondservant in the Greek word is doulos, which also means servant, but literally you could translate it slave. Paul, me, a slave of Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 1, I do not now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a slave of Christ. Titus chapter 1, verse 1, Paul again refers to him, Paul, a slave of God, right? James, the, 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 you know, James says in chapter 1, James, a bondservant of God, a slave of God. Peter says the same things. Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Simon Peter, a slave of the apostle and apostle of Jesus Christ. Jude, the book of Jude, chapter 1, right? Verse 1, Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ. They, they all refer to them slaves because I think they knew, right? I think they knew. If you're not a slave of this one, you'll be a slave of something else. Now, you might be responding to me and say this. Well, okay, that's fine. If that's true, if we're all going to be enslaved to something, then why, why slave to Christ? You know, at least I can choose my poison, right? Choose who I want to live for or what I want to be enslaved by. And here's the reason. Every other master, every other spiritual master, every other mental, emotional, physical master, every other master that I know of will be like this. They will punish you if you fail you will be punished if you fail right think about this if you live for friends and one of them hurts you or you hurt them you may no longer be friends again if you betray your wife or you betray your husband they might not want to be your husband or wife anymore that's it if you fail to work hard enough at work, you might get demoted. You may even lose your job. You make the wrong investment, that's money gone. It doesn't come back, right? You do something or say something that's wrong, right? It, your reputation's over. It's so unforgiving. I think that's the problem with the, all the everything else, right? But in Jesus Christ, you have this. Why follow Jesus Christ as your master? Because you have a master here who died at the cross. You have a master who became a slave for you. 
You have a master uh, who had all the power, but became powerless so that you could live powerfully. You have a master who came to this earth not to punish you when you did wrong, but to take your place and receive the punishment for your wrong. You've got a, a master here that gives you the status, that gives you the wealth, that gives you the kind of identity that no one, no one could take away from you, no matter what they do or what you do. You can live with someone and be enslaved to someone, but he is someone who is gentle in heart and spirit. And like he says in Matthew chapter 11, it's a yoke, but it's easy and it's light compared to everything else. You're going to be a slave to something. Jesus says, what about this? Right? Now let me just kind of conclude with this really quickly, and that is this. Here, uh, I think Luke, as he writes this, he's, he's asking us, our, us the question, is there such a faith that really covers all these bases? What I'm saying is this. You got Lydia, a rich, Asian, well-to-do, prosperous woman who is already kind of spiritual, who's already kind of moral, a good person who comes to Christ. But then he goes right into talking about a slave girl, no status, no wealth, poor, most likely sold by her parents to make money for someone else, someone under oppression, and now demonically or spiritually oppressed. You couldn't have two opposite extremes, more extreme than this. Right? And so the question I think Luke is right or thinking about is this. Is there a type of person that becomes a Christian? Is there a type of person that Jesus likes? And he gives you such an opposite extreme because he wants to say this, that the gospel message is a gospel of extremes. Lydia, rich, slave girl, poor. Lydia was an owner Slave girl was owned. Lydia was moral. This girl, she was struggling with spiritual oppression. And it tells us this, that there's a gospel here that says, here's a Jesus, here's a Lord that cares for, that loves, that has concern for the rich, the wealthy, the well-to-do, the well-educated, the well-off, just as much as the poor, the disenfranchised, the spiritually and socially oppressed. It's the same grace that saved Lydia, which we find effective in this girl, this poor slave girl. It's the same grace that saved. Is there a type of Christian? Is there, a, you know, I hear this oftentimes, yeah, he's such a Christian. You know, if I had to say that, uh, you know, I don't want to pick anyone out, but I, I, I like to pick on Abe. Right? If I looked at Abe, yeah, he, he's the Christian type. Right? <laughs> he looks like a Christian type. Right? He looks like a hipster Christian type. You know, a little beard and everything, you know, cool, but, you know, pretty good, you know, praise leader. He's a Christian type. And so there's a type of people who become Christians. Is there a type? And I think Luke tells us, no, no, there's no type. Lydia, rich, slave girl, poor, they, crazy, you know, you know, street addict, uh, you know, homeless person on the right, and then rich, wealthy, you know, live in a penthouse kind of person on the left. It, there's no type.
And between those two extremes, here's the good news. You and I are somewhere in the middle. We're in the middle. There are no type of Christians. There are no type of people who become Christians. There's only people who need Jesus Christ to set us free from the tyranny and the enslavement of the mundane, the things that we get trapped by every day, the things that we live for, that we work for, that always disappoint, that always makes our life hard. Jesus says, take my yoke. My burden is easy. My yoke is light. Let's pray.